grow your business. From News Talk with Gavin McLaughlin. Thanks to Euronext Dublin, the new home of the Irish Stock Exchange, supporting business for over 200 years. Hello and welcome to the Grow Your Business podcast. I'm Gavin McLaughlin and I'm here to help your business make money. This week we're talking about how to deal with a crisis. Every business, large or small, is likely to face one at some stage and my guests today are here to give their tips on how to minimise the damage. I'm joined by Doug Keating, Director at Murray Consultants, one of Ireland's top PR firms. Doug will be talking about how to handle your communications in a crisis situation. And also here with me is Tom Cronin, Managing Director and Co-Founder of Rye River Brewing. He's going to talk about Rye River's experience of a pretty painful restructuring after running into cash flow issues. Before we get there, though, Tom, let's talk about the birth of your company. Started, I believe, in 2013. The vision was what? Um, the vision, Gavin, was uh, to become the best little brewery in the world. Uh, a tagline <laughs> that we, uh, I think, achieved this year uh, with the World Beer Awards. So, um, I mean, a pretty bold ambition uh, for an Irish uh, brewery. Um, it was a time when there was changing consumer trends. Uh, people were looking for more artisanal product uh, products that had more provenance and uh, and we felt that craft beer was playing that space. What was your plan then to achieve this ambition of being the best little brewery? Um, well, be independent, um, set up a, a world-class facility um, and try and hone in on all the um, attributes that would allow us uh, stay true to our vision at the time. You know, uh, focus on producing really good beer, um, small batches. Um, we went so far as being I believe, the first uh, 100% Irish manufactured brewery in Ireland in over 100 years, um, company in Dundalk, Spectac, produced a brew house. So we were really trying to do things uh, the right way, I think, you know. So how did things go then in the first couple of years in terms of growing your revenue? What was uh, what was the, the cash flow like at that stage? Uh, 14. Uh, so it was late 13 when we uh, set off on our journey, uh, myself and two ex-founders uh, now. Um, and we had a clear strategy. Uh, we were going to produce uh, really good um, quality craft beer with a quirky brand and the brand was McGargles. Um, branding is really important um, and marketing can be very important, you know. Um, was it was retail, open. pubs, which was kind of more your focus? Uh, it was both. So um, fortunately we had all met in a, a you know, um, a multinational um uh, beer business so we had a lot of uh, retail experience we had a lot of fmcg experience so our approach at the start was uh, target retail listings in ireland and target on trade listings in ireland um, which was perfectly fine uh, we also needed export um, what i would say is that while we established ourselves in october 13 we actually contract brewed in the uk until april 14 um, which adds complexity to it you lose control on your quality uh, I'd look back now and say our beer, compared to where it is now, w- w- was was a starting product. You know, um, to answer your question, thirteen. You know, it's a kickoff. You have a bit of funds. You know, you have small bank loans. You have personal investment. Uh, fourteen. Um, we made money. It was after fourteen that things uh, went awry. Well, what happened? Uh, we lost focus. We started taking in agency brands. Uh, what does that mean now, agency brands? Agency brands are third-party distribution brands. Um, so in our case, we started distributing San Miguel in 2014, which is a 
big family-owned brand out of Spain. Uh, and in 2015, we started distributing Bavaria um, out of Holland for the Swinkle family. And when we started doing that, we started losing focus on what we set out, which was producing uh, the best beer that we could. The, the rationale for, for doing these distribution deals was what? Uh, you spread your cost base across third-party brands. So, you know, instead of calling to a retailer with some pallets of your own produced craft beer product, you're also calling in with third-party agency brands and uh, it, it, it it's, a, it's a cost-based thing. You know, ideally you make money on, on distribution, you grow their volume, you grow your profit and, and it all works out. <laughs> and and the idea is you take a cut basically of the sales of Bavaria or San Miguel. Or, Correct, you or, take maybe a case rate or a handling charge or, uh, you know, whatever, it's, it's different, you know. And why do you say this process caused you to lose your focus? Well, it becomes, uh, there, there comes a point in the morning where you become more preoccupied about selling someone else's brand than selling your own. And with that, um, you also feel obliged. I mean, these are really reputable, great brands um, around the world. Um, we had the uh, responsibility of trying to grow their volume and presence in Ireland. And with that, you need to invest. So in the case of those two big, large uh, brands, um, we had to invest in a sales force. We had to invest in a logistics uh, division. We had to invest in increased warehousing facilities. We had to ing- invest in uh, back office systems, reporting systems. Um, I would say an element of uh, being too ambitious too soon on a journey, you know. And I'd say I'm not the first uh, entrepreneur here yeah. to say that. You know? Well, we, we'll pause it there for a sec because, Doug, I want to bring you in on this. You're listening to Tom uh, describe kind of what happened. Is this kind of common uh, when you're dealing uh, with crises? What are, what are the most common uh, things that, that crop up for you? He's still standing and his business is thriving. So I think it's important to take away that businesses go through crises and if they handle them well, they recover. Um, Look, I think there's a wide range of different types of crises that we come across with our clients from kind of financial cash crunch situations, as Tom describes. I mean, the other different ones I would go through would be things like um, accidents, industrial accidents or fires, uh, big product recall, for instance, in agribusiness and food. Uh, you can have industrial relations type crises, so big, big strikes. Um, <clears throat> I think fraud is an area sort of in the financial sector, fraud, embezzlement. And I guess the last one I'd reference, and I think it's going to be a growing one, is around the threat of, of sort of cybersecurity and technology and hacks, data protection and all that. So, look, there's a there's a lot of different things that are, that are coming at any business owner. And I think uh, if there was one thing I would say to people listening to the show is, you have to anticipate and think think ahead and try to prepare and game out what you could have coming at you. It's the head in the sand attitude that it will never happen to me that probably leaves you most exposed. Yeah, and it kind of touches on a theme we've touched on here previously about you know businesses that ultimately have an ambition to go public, even though they're not required by law to obey all the rules that public companies have to obey it's kind of a good idea to start doing it anyway, even before you get there. And it gets you into the good habit, like you were talking about here, where you have to identify, say, in your annual report, what the big risks uh, your, your company might be facing are. Let's just tease it out, though, because you, you touched on, on an idea of uh, financial fraud there. And say, you know, I run a hypothetical wealth management business and I discover that, you know, somebody's been robbing money off the clients and, uh, you know, it's it's about to break in, in the newspapers. And I say, Doug, 
what am I going to do? What happens? What do you say to me in, in response? Well, it's interesting you raised that because I was struck recent, reading an interview recently with Gary Kennedy, who was the director of AIB, and he was uh, remembering the day he got the phone call about uh, John Rusnak uh, in their division in, in, in the US in Allfirst, who had somehow through his, his poor trading record, I think, squandered $700 million of the bank's money. Um, what do you think, uh, what do I think you should do? Look, I think there's a few things you need to do. I think you have to have a warts and all look at yourself internally and find out, uh, get to the bottom of the problem. Uh, there is a danger when there's a crisis in a business that uh, people run for cover, people obfuscate, people hide. And I think it's only if you have kind of radical transparency at that moment when things are uncovered that there is a hope uh, that you can deal with it. Um, <clears throat> I think in an ideal world, we would always say, try and take control of the story. So, you know, if it's going to get out there, then try and get it out there on your terms. Um, and what, what, what does that mean, though? Because I'm interested, you're talking about your terms and, and radical transparency. The temptation must always be there to have some sort of a cover up, hide some, some of the worst details back. I mean, is that, do you advise that or, or should you get everything out there? Kitchen sink it, uh, I think is the phrase. <clears throat> Look, I think there's always a temptation. Um, you know, it's a scary moment, uh, say, pressing the button on that uh, email distribution that is an announcement of a problem in your business. Um, but I think in the case you identify where it's, it sounds like uh, it's a significant amount of money, it's likely to come out. I think uh, it is important to, to take it and own it. And what I, what I mean by that is, um, if you are the person who volunteers the information, I think there's a few things you can do. One, I think it demonstrates uh, a degree of honesty and openness that I think you will be respected for. I think two, it allows you to shape the narrative by saying there's a problem, but we're already trying to address it uh, by doing X, Y, and Z. Uh, so I think if you do that, at least the first draft of history is moving it beyond the problem and towards a solution. If you don't, uh, you know, that story will splash potentially in a newspaper of the crisis uh, at your door. And if you've not commented or engaged, then you're going to be in deep trouble. Well, there you have it. Getting tempted into a cover up might not be such a good idea. In a moment, Tom will tell me when he first realised his business was in the midst of a crisis. <laughs> You're listening to the Grow Your Business podcast. I'm Gavin McLaughlin here with Doug Keating, Director at Murray Consultants and Tom Cronin, Managing Director and Co-Founder of Rye River Brewing. Tom, what was the moment when you thought we're in deep doo-doo here? Um, about August 2016. In, in, in June 2016, we had taken in uh, an investment, a substantial investment into the business Um by August, September, it became apparent that we were again running out of cash. That was the that was the D day. And I'm interested in the psychological aspect of kind of that realization. Uh, how do you kind of deal with it and remain able to function when you've got this going on in the back of your head? Um, I think, uh, as Duke said, there you, you've got to be transparent and honest, firstly with yourself, and uh, you do a deep deep dive and, and look at all those warts and all Doug as you said you know um, in our case it was sit around the table with uh, what was then a new investor um, an alternative investor because at the time um, banks um, you know were were quite um, resistant in, in, in lending to an SME especially in the craft brewing industry 
Um, so we, we sat around the table and um, we, we, had to, uh, we had to sell our soul a little to save a business. What, what do you mean sell our soul? So in, in the case of Rival Brewing Company, uh, I gave a debenture on my shares for follow-on funding. Um, but with that came a huge catalyst of change. Um, fortunately, I think our investors believed in, in me, maybe, more than uh, a lot of other people at the time. Um, I, I had a vision. It became a five-year plan of which we're living and delivering right now. Um, in our case, we did a full restructure in the business between uh, October, November 2016 and January 2017. Um, you said uh, you gave a debenture on your shares. So in other words, that meant if you weren't able to pay them back, they'd take your shares. Is that what that means? Correct, yeah. So, I mean, you must have been... <clears throat> I mean, that's a pretty drastic thing to do. You, you must have been tempted maybe to just say, look, let's walk away and move on. Uh, I, I was, yeah. No point saying otherwise. But I also, you know, there's an onus and responsibility. I set out with a, a plan and a vision in 2014. Um a good plan and vision. Um, I maintained that within our journey, we had just got lost. Um, ultimately, there was at that point 63 people um, waiting to get paid on the 16th of the month. If I had walked away in November 2016, uh, I have no doubt that Rye River Brewing Company would now be another casualty and that our brew house would be scrap metal somewhere. So I think there is an element of um, personal integrity at these points. Um, I believe that if I fixed the business, I'd fix my own shareholding, etc. in time. And, and that's turned out, you know. I think actually, Tom, there's an important point he raises there, which is, you know, the way I was talking, maybe quite focused around, you know, me during a crisis. But actually, there's a whole load of different stakeholders you need to be thinking about, whether that be uh, your staff, uh, your senior management team, uh, your customers, your suppliers, uh, your investors. And if you get that, you know, dialogue or messaging wrong, you know, and people don't think you have it under control, you know, that's where people start yeah. to pull the plug. That's where the suppliers start to call in their invoices. That's where the investors start to say, do you know what, uh, you know, I'm going to accelerate calling in that loan. And that's when things can accelerate very, very yeah, rapidly. Yeah, and I mean, it, it's kind of the headless chicken effect, isn't it? And I mean, that's part of your job, Doug, if you're, if you're helping a company who's going through this. Uh, I suppose you need to try and create some sense of calm. I mean, what, how do you go about doing that? Well, I think one thing, th there is a danger in a crisis that the sort of chain of command goes AWOL. And as you say, you, you get that headless chicken effect. So in an ideal world, we would always encourage companies and clients to, to have a plan or a crisis manual that actually is where you've thought at what you would do, but you're doing it in the calmness of not being under pressure. So in a sensible, rational phase, you can sit down and say, okay, this is what we'll do. This will be the decision-making committee. This will be the monitoring that we'll set up immediately. You know, this will be how it all works. And it's actually, you know, if there is a crisis, it's great to have that break glass moment when you go, actually, you know, here's something we thought about when we weren't under a lot of pressure and let's follow it. I mean, you've got to be flexible, but still, at least you have that in place. I think also, uh, now this isn't maybe possible for smaller businesses but you know some of the, the bigger companies in Ireland will very sensibly uh, do full like simulations of how to deal with crises and actually interestingly the insurance industry is increasingly as part of premium renewal uh, expecting companies you know maybe in the agribusiness or industrial manufacturing to actually be able to demonstrate that they 
have a crisis uh, manual in place, but also they've done a simulation. And often what we'll find in clients is, is we'll go, so do you, do, you, do you have a preparation for a client, uh, for, for a crisis? And let's say it's, it's, it's someone engaged in, in food manufacturing. And they'll go, oh, yeah, we do. And what you'll often find is they have a plan that is the kind of production plan, you know, how to do the product recall, et cetera. But they, they haven't actually thought about all the communications aspects from both the media to the stakeholders and, and, and often be saying you also need to, to overlay that on top because it, it's not just the kind of production side, there's also a whole load of other ramifications. Yeah, I mean, you listen to Tom there describing how he had to interact <laughs> with his investors. Um, how, what, what's your takeaway from that? I mean, what, 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 uh, how do you think he handled it and how, how do you think uh, in general people should handle it? Well, I think he, 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 it sounds like he did a couple of things that are very important. He was... He was open and honest about the challenges they were facing. Um, he was also, I think, and, and this is, a, I suppose, a gut thing that an investor will have to decide in a difficult moment is, do I buy into, do I believe in this guy? So he, had the, he was able to, to have that credibility. But credibility isn't just coming from, you know, sounding like a nice, clever guy. You had a plan, you had a vision, and you were willing to, to you know, Tom had to take considerable pain uh, himself, uh, potentially surrender a lot of the financial upside from something he'd invested huge amounts of time in, and obviously he was able to convince them to, to back them. Now, if you took that, take that at a macro level, okay, this is a sort of smaller business with with a sort of small investment group. But if, even if you take a big, a big PLC uh, that is under pressure uh, from, say, the big investment houses, I mean, it's at a different level, but it's still the same thing. Unless you are communicating with them, have a relationship with them, have them believe in you, go out and talk to them and convince them. You know, they are quite capable of putting the pressure on your board and getting that CEO and that's, removed. That, well, I mean, that's a growing trend uh, at the moment, isn't it? I think there's definitely more, uh, how should we say it, interventionist uh, uh, approach from some of the, the big investment houses. And there's, and there's obviously areas that are becoming more co- controversial around I mean, remuneration is probably the big one where you're having, you know, what the media like to call investor revolts when, for instance, uh, you know, is that a crisis? I'm not sure it kind of fits in the same boat, but it's certainly something you have to think about if you're if you're putting your remuneration report uh, to your AGM. And, you know, these days, if if 30 percent, 35 percent of people don't support it, given the number of votes that are kind of passively voted anyway, that's actually what I would call quite a big active sure. share being negative. Tom, as you're listening uh, to, to Doug's description, um, do you think, uh, as you look back, are there aspects of uh, the crisis that you could have handled better? Uh, where I'm standing today and, and with the momentum and, and success we have in the business, um, I think we handled it really well. Um, is there things I would do differently? A few, maybe. Um, like what? Um... <laughs> What's the main one? I, I think that um, we we acted with decisiveness. We changed the board. We changed um, the management team. Um, I probably was reluctant to, even though we had a five year plan. You you tend to go back into your shell for a period of time, and I think I think that's a natural reaction. You know, everything is 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 handled with white gloves for a period of time. Um, maybe for a few months too long I, I kept those gloves on you know we had great brands I had great people uh, by January 2017 we had a really good uh, board in place very experienced and I think that's what it comes down to we had an experienced management team in place um, and I probably held back the ambition a little 
um, into 2016, even though our 16, our 17, sorry, turned out to be a very successful year for us. I mean, we reversed losses on EBITDA of 2.4 million to making 618,000 within 12 months. So I think that's the litmus test that what we did worked. Um, but along the way, I was probably a bit too protective of, of um, driving on my five-year plan that bit earlier. You should, yes, you should almost have been more ruthless, uh, is what you're saying. But you talk about changing the board and the management team and all that. I mean, these are obviously very difficult decisions to make. It involves mm-hmm. people who you've been working with for a, a period of time. Uh, I mean, we discussed this on, on the last episode of the programme, but I'm interested to get your take. How do you steel yourself uh, to make a difficult decision like that? Um, I think you have to put the business first. Uh, in our case, we put the uh, we ended up at the end of 2017 with 45 employees. We started, uh, we ended 2000, uh, we started 16 with about 63. So along the way, uh, you know, we, we had casualties and uh, I had to deal with those and, and, and make decisive decisions. Um, but I look at it that I say 45 jobs. We're now back up at 51. So I think if you put the business first, take yourself out of the equation, take your own personal gain out of the equation. If my ambition was to become that best little brewery in the world, I had a plan, I had a talented team, and um, and, and ultimately I believed that um, decisive decisions and, and taking full control from uh, early 2017 would, would make that happen, you know? Uh, the plan. How did you formulate it? What were the in different ingredients that went into it? Um, okay, uh, put in a new board, uh, put in a new management team. I'd step in as MD. We'd have a new focus. We'd have a five-year strategy. We would um, ensure that our investors were fully informed at all times as to what was happening in the business. Um, we corrected our cost base. So we, you, did, you got rid of the distribution contracts, did yes, you? Yes, we exited all agency brands in 2017. Um, and we did it amicably. I mean, I'm dealing with, um, at this point, we're in uh, contracts with very large brands, um, European brands, one out of Holland, one out of Spain. And you're trying to reverse out, you know, um, and, and do it without litigation um, and, and without any um, penalties in terms of costs and fees. And we managed to do it, but it comes back to uh, a word, Doug, you mentioned there a minute ago, relationship. I developed a relationship in a toxic time with two very large independent brewing families in Europe. Um, was it easy? Absolutely not. It took us eight months to exit one of the contracts, um, but we did so amicably in the end, and uh, I'd like to say I still have a relationship with both. So it comes back to relationships with everyone around you, your management team, your board, your people that you employ, uh, your investors. You know, It's open communication. It's do not hide things. Give them warts and all. Again, going back to your phrase, and it comes back to someone has to believe in what you're doing and saying as well, Gavin. I mean, people did back me. People did believe in me. Um, and that includes the 45 employees, the board, the management, the investors, and even the third party uh, agency brands at the time when I explained, we can't do this anymore, you know? Just picking up uh, on what Tom said about relationships um, <clears throat> and specifically in terms of, of media in a crisis, um, we, we often, you know, we'll often deal with clients who, you know, a lot of the time their view of media is, I just want to get on and run my business. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to deal with them. I, maybe I'm a private company or even if I'm a public company, I want to do the de minimis amount. 
and, and and get on with it? Why you know why do I need to interact? Why do I have to answer the questions that you know Gavin McLaughlin is is firing into me? And one thing I would always say is that you know uh, it's it's a bit like an insurance policy. Unless you invest in those relationships uh, with journalists over time, you know it could be five, ten years. You develop that relationship where. You know, you're constructive, you try to be helpful when you can, you work with them on stories, you try to be open. Uh, that may seem like a, a pain, it might seem like it costs money paying fees of people like me to be your PR advisor. But what it does mean that when the SH1T hits the fan, um, at least the person you're talking to is more likely to give you time of day to hear you out uh, and potentially give you the benefit of the doubt. Whereas if you have for the last 10 years said no comment to any question they've ever asked, and then you're ringing up saying, oh, please don't be too hard on me in this crisis. You know, it, mm-hmm. it, it stands to reason that people uh, aren't necessarily uh, going to go with it. And, and just one other thing to Tom's point, you know, I think it's easy not to take the hard decisions. You know, it's no one wants to fire staff. You know, no one wants to tell their business partner we've reached the end of the road. No one wants to say to their chairman, you know, this isn't working out, we're changing our board. But ultimately, you know, as we all know in life, sometimes you have to take those difficult uh, decisions to, to be the catalyst for real change. And in a year's time, you'll look back and say, I'm so glad I did that. I'd rather, you know, fire 10 people to save a business than potentially end up in a year's time in examinership or liquidation and 60 people lose their jobs. Well, that shows you just how important strong relationships are and, and, and definitely something that'll hold you in good stead if and when a crisis hits. Next, Doug will tap into his experience to tell us some of the best and worst examples of businesses handling crises. As you look back over your career, Doug, and I'm not not asking you to to, to name names or or give too many specifics, but could you give me an example of uh, one uh, crisis you dealt with where where you thought it was handled well and why that was? And then conversely, one that wasn't handled so well and why that was. Uh, yeah, well, the first one's probably easier and I can be more open about, about who this was with. This was back um, in about 2005 or six when I worked as a media advisor with the development charity Oxfam. Uh, and I worked out in Indonesia in Aceh on their tsunami program uh, sort of the year after the disaster. And obviously... Huge sums of money, hundreds, billions of, of, of euros was, was offered in aid. And there was a, a big concern a year on about whether this was being used effectively, whether the money was going to the right people. Um, we had a kind of scary moment um, when a conference call was called between the sort of senior management team where it was discovered that we there'd been some kind of a financial fraud in our program. We, we, we couldn't quantify how much it was. Um, and then we had to decide, do we wait until we, you know, we we were, we appointed, we were appointing an external accounting firm to investigate. Uh, do we wait until the end of their investigation, you know? And if it's nothing, then we can sweep it under the carpet, or do we get out in front of it and be open and honest? And and you know, there was there was a debate, um, and the the biggest problem was because we couldn't quantify it. What always happens if you can't quantify something is the media go to the highest possible number. So the highest possible number for us was well, how much money is 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 in the program, which was ninety six million dollars. So. You know, if we came out with it, you know, fraud in Oxfam's $96 million tsunami program um, was was going to be a, a challenging headline. Um, the advice, and it wasn't just from me, but uh, there was a degree of kind of integrity and recognition that, you know, if, if we don't act right here uh, and this goes wrong, it could be hugely damaging for reputation. So there was a decision to 
you know, to write the press release, you know, to do the announcement saying we have uncovered this, this is the problem, uh, and to go out with it. Did you say we can't quantify how much it is? We 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 said we can't quantify it, but obviously we knew in the Q and A that you had prepared. The first question was going to be how big was it? Of course, that's what everyone asked. Mm. So so how did that play out? Well, what it played out as expected. I mean, Oxfam's a big brand name in the international development space. The the tsunami was a huge thing. It went global. You know, this was New York Times, FT, you know, AP, Reuters, the works. Uh, with these headlines now, two 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 good things. Um, there was a tonal thing in which there was a there was a, there was a recognition. I think that we'd come out and announced it, and there was a recognition that there was an ongoing process. There was an awful two or three week period then when we were kind of waiting uh, to find out what happened. And in the end, the issue was was relatively minor, and we were able to kind of close it out. But the the, the thing I'm most proud of in in that was was that um, afterwards the New York Times wrote a comment piece. Uh, or ran a comment piece by a guy from Humanitarian Aid Accountability, which is kind of the the, the kind of most respected organisation, where he said, I hope that this isn't interpreted in the end as Oxfam being the only one with problems. They are, in fact, the only ones to come out to deal with the problem. And actually, I think our status and the stakeholders that were important for us here are obviously the governments and donors who are supporting us, the the, the individual donors who are supporting us, and obviously the, the people we're helping and I think at the end of the day, with all of those people, there was there was kudos at the way we've managed it. So that's something that 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 um, I'm happy with. Um, I'm trying to think about one. Um, I'll, I'll talk about this in general terms. I think this is this is a challenge for for for, for people in my position where um, this would have been an example where there's a there's a there's a disaster that that, that a company is involved in, and you're encouraging. That kind of degree of of transparency and openness, and they are trying to kind of hold back, and you end up in this very sort of unhappy halfway house where you're kind of neither one nor the other, and it gradually gets dragged out of you, and it's a kind of death by a thousand cuts. Yeah, so uh, it means the story lasts for weeks and months rather than maybe you've got everything out on the first. Yeah, day. and that's why I would always encourage that. Uh, I mean, it's it's the classic example, say, Volkswagen emission scandal, where you know. I don't think that they quantify it was, you know, it was a 50,000 cars then it was a hundred thousand cars and it was 200,000 cars. You know, Tony Hayward famously in the BP, uh, Macondo well scandal, you know, one week was saying, um, you know, this is, this is, this is a manageable, uh, issue, but it's a, you know, it's, it's a problem. And the next, next week was saying, you know, this is an international environmental catastrophe. Um, I think you're better to go big and pull back than go, you know, slowly up, up, up. Coming up, Tom will be looking forward to what's next for Rye River Brewing. Plus, we'll get his and Doug's top tips for handling a crisis. You're listening to the Grow Your Business podcast with Gavin McLaughlin. I'm here with Doug Keating, Director at Murray Consultants, and Tom Cronin, Managing Director and Co-Founder of Rye River Brewing. Tom, uh, as we look forward then for you guys... Uh, you know, Doug is talking about having a crisis manual and, and being aware of the, the potential landmines uh, that are out there for you. How has your your experience from 2015, 16 uh, changed how you, how you think about the business in general and how you think about uh, dealing with any future problems? Um, uh, on a few fronts, we've probably become really focused. Um, we have a five-year plan. Um, we're very strategic in how we implement it. Um, 
we've taken off the shackles. We believe in ourselves 100%. So we're, we're ambitious for growth. Um, and everything we do is about the beer and the culture and the people in the business now. So uh, we, have, we have a culture called the Rye River Way, um, which um, focuses back on the individuals that produce the great beer that allow me go to the great retailers and the support we have both in the domestic market and international markets and go, I'm producing some of the best beers in the world. So it, it's all about the culture in Rye River Brewing Company at this stage uh, and everyone buying into it. Um, and, and it's paying dividends. I mean, this year we had 21 World Beer Awards, um, most decorated independent brewery in Europe for the second year in a row, and most dec- decorated independent brewery at the World Beer Awards. So, you know, I focus back in on the people, the quality, the consistency. Um, one thing uh, Doug said along the way is the other thing we did really well, I think, is that we brought the retailers on the journey. We went out and said, we are in a difficult situation, but we're working through it. Um, you know, we we never um, caused any grievances or issues in terms of supply, uh, quality or anything in 2016 and to 17, you know. But along the way, we were having monthly meetings with our large retailers because there was snippets in the news. I mean, you know, we are Irish and uh, <laughs> we do comment on people's uh, <laughs> unfortunate circumstances at times. And uh, I felt the best way around it was get up front and tell people this is what we're doing to correct the business, you know. And I think actually that there's a there's a point there. I mean, we, we advise people, you know, if they're in a crisis, obviously regular updates to media, but crucially also regular updates to, to, to your stakeholders like your retailers, mm-hmm. because actually in a crisis, you know, it's all very well for you to say, you know, we're doing well, it's great. But actually what a third party says about you is almost more important. Um, the other thing I think Tom said around culture, I think, is is interesting. There's a, there's a story actually in the newspapers today about a UK house builder called Persimmon, uh, which was in controversy last year around the, the, the CEO being paid £75 million and bonuses, etc. And he, he ended up falling on his sword. There's a new management team in place and there's concerns about the quality of building standards uh, that they have. And, and they took the very brave step of appointing a, a Queen's Council, a senior barrister, uh, to do an independent review and a sort of warts and all review of their company, and I guess uh, that was published uh, yesterday and and came out very criti- you know very critical of the business, saying there was a you know systemic systemic national failure, and very critical of the culture in the business, kind of pointing to a culture where it was basically sort of bonus driven, get the job done, no focus on quality. So at one level, you might look at that and go, this company's bonkers. It's appointed this QC to go out. She's thrown the book at them. Uh, you know, why would they do that? But if you actually take a longer term view, I think it's pro- it's, it's actually quite impressive because they have shown the bravery uh, to be challenged by an external party. They've It's clearly pointing to history. There's a new management team. The new management team can say, OK, we've taken this advice. We're going to change it and we're going to make the cultural change that is required. And actually, it's only really credible because that was done by, by an external party. You know, the old classic we've done an internal review yeah it's that, not that's often going to say wash. because i mean e- but people are still skeptical even when you're even when they're you're saying it's independent people are always in the back of their mind like i mean and that's the, the, well oh, i mean you know. gavin that's the skeptical journalist in you but at the at the end of the day you know yes uh, you know when someone appoints a kpmg a deloitte uh, you know they say well you know you're paying them fees uh, they're going to come out with the right answer. There's always a danger of that. I suppose the flip side is that uh, these companies are putting their brand and reputation on the line. And in the case of a of a QC, a barrister, uh, this is a barrister who was a representative on the representing victims in the Grenfell Public Inquiry. Uh, I think had has a kind of credibility 
uh, in a way, they chose probably one of the hardest taskmasters that they could. Yeah. And, and probably- I, you know, I, I don't mean to say that KPMG or Deloitte w- wouldn't be, be independent, but it, it just there is people do. There is always a, a natural scepticism when it comes to this. I mean, like and this. then but then what do you do? Not internal, do it external. You know, you 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 got to go somewhere. Um, so so it's tricky. I mean, obviously, you get some situations where where it's more serious and it's and it's guard or investigations and and fraud bureaus and stuff. And and then you know that that's a, that's a, obviously a different story. Has the I mean, you, you touched on cyber uh, crime earlier, Doug, in terms of some of the new uh, challenges that businesses are facing. I wanted to ask you about social media um, because, you know, say 10 years ago, if something went wrong, you know, it'd be in the papers or on, on telly or whatever, but social media has, has become such a big force now and it's easy for, you know, uh, criticism or some of it may be untrue or that to spread like wildfire. Mm. Um, so if this is happening, uh, what do you advise companies to do? Well, I think the first thing is is in a crisis, the the monitoring of what's coming at you is is hugely important. And as you say, you know, back in the good old days, that might have been checking the newspapers or listening to the radio bulletins. Now, uh, the story is going to break and move forward most quickly on social media, particularly Twitter. So, you know, a key part of any plan has to be how you're monitoring that. Uh, the kind of social listening you're doing and then how you're responding and managing as you say where there are there is disinformation and it's you know your twitter handle is potentially one of your most useful tools uh in a crisis for for communicating uh and also being a kind of reference point for all those covering the scandal to follow uh, and i think you know a lot of organizations even on you know more not crises but you know say an, an irish rail or or a dublin bus kind of using uh, Twitter is a way to communicate, you know, directly uh, with people and get the right information out there. But if you're not monitoring and responding and managing the social media uh, environment, you know, things can run out of control uh, very quickly. Equally, though, um, you know, we always say, you know, you don't want to get into you don't want to get into spats or arguments. You know, in a crisis, you just want to be very factual. Only deal in facts. Don't speculate. Don't get into opinion. You know, people will have their views. But just get out and communicate the facts. Do you use social media much? Uh, we do, yeah. Um, we're quite active on it. Um, I actually just got our stats for uh, yesterday and we're well ahead of our landscape uh, in terms of um, interaction reach and everything. But we, we, we have a modest budget put aside to it. I think we're, we're good at it without spending a fortune. Briefly then, guys, I want to get your tips. Uh, if you had a key do and don't for a business dealing with a crisis, what would it be? And Tom, I'll start with you. Uh, do make the difficult decision. Uh, do communicate to all uh, stakeholders, including your investors. Um, make sure everyone is aware of everything you're doing for that crisis period. Uh, in our case, it became a weekly meeting uh, for at least eight months um, with the board, my management team and our investors sitting around the table. Uh, in our case, it was a daily uh, management of cash flow. Um, you know, you have to watch the details in those seven or eight months of crisis, you know, and believe in yourself. Doug? Um, look, I think I've already said planning, thinking ahead, trying to game out what could come at you. I think being able to move quickly, to react quickly when something happens and try to take control rather than kind of you're not going to know everything before you need to communicate, but even getting out there and showing an awareness of it and communicating that you will update people when you know more uh, is particularly important. And I think that the regular updates and engagement with with media and stakeholders are key and investing in those relationships uh, so that you have that insurance policy and those relationships to draw on uh, when you hit difficulty. And just finally, uh, always, if you do have a problem, it's taking the learnings from it 
reviewing and updating what you do because the reality is any business that's going to be around for 20, 30, 40, 50 years is going to survive, have to survive several crises and it should be getting better and more resilient every time. We leave it there, folks. Thanks very much. That's Doug Keating, Director at Murray Consultants and Tom Cronin, Managing Director of Rye River Brewing. That's it for this week. We'll be back next Thursday at 4pm where we'll be looking at how to do an IPO. Join us then. Grow your business from News Talk with Gavin McLaughlin. Thanks to Euronext Dublin, the new home of the Irish Stock Exchange, supporting business for over 200 years.